Welcome to the Speak Like a Leader podcast with John Bates. Welcome to the show. With me today is somebody that uh, I've known for quite a while, actually. I feel like I was fortunate to have met this gentleman earlier in my path. Gosh, it's been almost 10 years now. Mm -hmm. And what I love about the guy I'm about to introduce is that as we were getting ready to to hit record and start this, he said, well, John, I mean, you know, my one rule is like, nothing's out of bounds. Like ask me anything, like everything's on the table, you know, let's go. And that is something that I think is at once tremendously courageous, tremendously refreshing and tremendously important. So I'm really happy to have Dove Baron with me. You can find him at dovebaron.com. He he said you can actually email him if you want. Dove D O V at Dove Baron D O V B B A R O N dot com, and he's also on LinkedIn at forward slash in forward slash Dove Baron D O V B A R O N. So Dove, welcome. Thanks hey, for joining hey. me. Always always a pleasure and honor to talk to you, John. I am looking forward to this immensely. I'm excited to see where the hell this road winds to. <laughs> yeah, it's a good question, right? Well, you know, we don't know. Things- it's cool. so and, we, t- and meanwhile, people get to eavesdrop in on our very intimate and great conversation. Yeah, well, and you know, we've had a number of those, and oh, it yeah. seems to, in you know, one of the things that I think we're really lucky about is that that's kind of all we've had, <laughs> which I think is awesome. Yeah. Um, I I did read something a little while ago as an aside that was talking about ways to speed up friendship. Because one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot lately, Dove, is that men are not as well taught generally by society Mm -hmm. to form meaningful, deep friendships. Absolutely. And part of that is totally understandable. Like we do what we do. We, our friendships happen shoulder to shoulder, right? We're at the game together. We're building something together. We're, you know, doing that kind of stuff, but we miss out on that, that intimacy and that having somebody who really knows you and knows about what's going on internally for you and is there when you're down. And I've been really looking into friendship and male friendship and reaching out to my male friends and saying, Hey, we die 10 years earlier than women do. Cause we don't do this stuff. Let's do this stuff and live longer. You know, now all of that to say, there is no way to short. There's only one way to shortcut how long it takes to create a friend. Absolutely. The only way to do that is to have deep conversations. Just immediately go have deep conversations, talk about real stuff that's even difficult to talk about. Can I I give an example of that that will help people to to address the reality of it? Please. So as you're listening to this right now, whether you're a man or woman, it doesn't matter. As you're listening to this right now, I want you to stop for a moment. I want you to just think of or imagine on one side of you, there is a friend, like a deeply trusted, you know, truly loyal friend that you've known for a period of time. Let's say five years. It doesn't matter what the time period is, but let's say five years. Now, on the other side of you, I want you to imagine an acquaintance. Now, this is not somebody you have that same level of trust in, but it's an acquaintance, but you've known them for about the same amount of time. 
So now we have time is no longer a factor because a lot of people say, well, the reason this person is my friend is because I've known them longer. No, no. You've known them both the same point of time. And you've done that. I know you do. You have those two people in your mind right now. So now let me ask you, what is the difference between your deeply trusted loyal friend and the acquaintance? Now think for a moment. And the answer is this, reciprocal vulnerability. They know your shit. I don't know whether I can say that word. They know your <laughs> shit and you know theirs and you're not using it against each other. Now, the interesting thing is, if I was to walk you back in time with your acquaintance, you have or they have tried to do that. But it wasn't reciprocated. And as a result, they fell into the acquaintance bucket rather than the friend bucket. So how do we build deeply intimate relationships through reciprocal vulnerability? And that's why you've been in a bar, you've been in a coffee shop, you've been somewhere, and you've hung around and you've met somebody for the very first time, and you're talking to them for like 15 minutes, and you're like, oh, my God, it's like I've known you all my life because there was reciprocal vulnerability. That is the key element. That's, that's what, fabulous. That's what turbocharges friendships and connects us super fast. So, Dev, tell everybody what it is you do out in the in the wider world when you're not on podcasts that you either host or that you join, like you're joining me. Uh, well, I smoke crack. I deal heroin. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> You don't get that about me. I mess about a lot. So uh, what do I do? Well, uh, there's all kinds of things you could say that I do. Um, of course, you know, I've got accolades as in, you know, who I've spoken for and what I've done. So I speak on leadership and I speak on the broader sense of leadership, which is not just corporate, but political and all kinds of leadership. And, of course, personal leadership. I've yeah. been honored to speak for the U.N., I've spoke for the World Management Conference in Iran. Um, you know, I've done all those kind of cool yeah. things. Um, but I work with organizations in helping them to build a culture that is based around meaning-driven culture. And I work privately with high-level individuals. And I'm talking about people who other people look at and go, I want to be you when I grow up. And they are the people who say, what's next, Dove? And so when you're done with your coaches and everybody else, then you come to me. So that's kind of the that's the main things I do. And of course, as you know, John, I have two podcasts, Leadership and Loyalty and Curiosity Bites. Leadership and Loyalty, obviously, is about leadership and curiosity and bites is about having conversations with people you previously might have disagreed with. Because I believe, it's my philosophy, it's not the truth, it's mine, that curiosity is the cure for the world. We talk about, oh, we need to have better racial rights, so we need to have more equality. Okay, all those things are not they're not wrong. But here's the thing. If you ask a question, somebody gets an answer, and therefore somebody's wrong or they're right. That creates a bigger divide. But if we're willing to become curious, that deepens understanding. So I want to be curious in everything I do. I want to be curious in every conversation I have because then I can understand you better. So on Curiosity Bites, we have conversations with previous people who were neo-Nazis, a person who was uh, Donald Trump's media expert. Um, we've had neuroscientists, philosophers, um, quantum physicists, um, brain surgeons. Uh, it's just phenomenal conversations, but really going to deeply personal levels about how these people are formed and created. So those are the things I'm up to. 
just a couple of little things here and there. I love it. And so, Dove, that that's immediately something that I – I'm I'm both at once sort of trying to avoid in this conversation because I'm a little scared, but also something that I'm that I'm trying to step into a lot more, especially in my personal one-on-one, not for public consumption conversations, is just talking to people about all that stuff that we can't even talk about. Mm-hmm. So you know. This is one of the things I work with when people are doing a TED talk or a TEDx talk or a TED like talk is what I asked them the question because, you know, one of the keys is don't go do your usual shtick, you know, like you can't go do what you usually do. So I, I asked people, what's it like to be you, you know, what is the experience been of doing what you usually do and being able to be the person who usually gives that talk. So as you look at this, the curiosity bites and you look at the arc of that so far, as you've been doing that, all the different people that you've been getting, are there a few things that stand out for you in terms of just what's going on and how to have those conversations and anything that would be useful to leaders who are navigating what I think is an extremely treacherous time in terms of just being able to talk about anything? Yeah, it, it's a, very interesting, John, um, because, as you know, I also teach people to speak and do communication. And part of the, the challenge that people have is everybody's dancing around on freaking eggshells. Yeah. Around everything, right. So the first thing you got to do is get rid of the eggshells. So how do you get rid of the eggshells? Well, reciprocal vulnerability. Yeah. You have to reveal yourself first. So nobody's going to call you a, quote, racist if you reveal your soul first. If you say something that's racist and you revealed your soul first, people will generally give you the the benefit of the doubt because they'll assume you didn't mean it that way. But if you've not revealed yourself, they're going to throw you into the bucket. So, you know, a lot of the politically correct stuff drives me nuts. I'm not in favor of it, but I am in favor of a lot of what it stands for. I want equal rights for people and all the borders of different things, but I'm not willing to be offended by things that don't offend me. Um, I was born in the UK and I have a British sense of humor. I've been gone for 40 odd years, but I've not lost that humor. And that humor is, um, shall we say, a little pointed. Um, Yeah. And sometimes it's, it's politically incorrect, and it's and I, I do that with all of my friends. You know, I'm married to somebody of color. Uh, um, I, I, I have many friends across every possible spectrum. Nobody ever takes offense at that, nor do I take it when they come at me because they know my soul. I reveal myself, who I am first. So if you're a leader and you're worried about having these conversations, you have to start with your vulnerability. And so, what would that be like? I'm afraid to have this conversation. You say that out loud. Don't yeah. claim a leader and, oh, I'm going to be really assertive and I'm going to be really po-. No, no, don't do that. So <laughs> I am freaking terrified here because I'm a – I'm just making this one up. But I'm a man over 50 who grew up in maybe a different time, who maybe grew up with a different language, and I'm kind of frightened of inserting my shoe in my mouth without ever intending to do so. So I'm going to ask you to have compassion for my lack of understanding sometimes, but to to question if that's my true intent or whether I'm being soulful with you and open with you. And I think that if you do that with people, I've never met anybody who is going to bite back at you if you do that. 
Yeah. So I think that's those combos. Yeah. I think that's really great. I, I mean, and you and I definitely, I think we connected on this from the very beginning, have that focus on leadership as being very tied to, and now I love your uh, reciprocal vulnerability. Mm -hmm. I'm going to start saying that and crediting you. Thank you. Here's what I'd like to toss in into the mix with you. And Absolutely. I hope you like it, but I've started attempting to coin the term insightful vulnerability, which for leaders, you know, to bring insightful vulnerability to your leadership. And what I mean by that is like what Les Brown says, you know, people connect with your messes, your messages in your mess. Yep. And when you share that vulnerability, if you also couple insight to it, what did you learn from that failure? What did you learn from that embarrassing thing? Now, wow, everybody gets a great thing out of that. It's not just vulnerability for vulnerability's sake. It's actually got some insight and some offer to it. And if, and I love your uh, reciprocal vulnerability because, and, and it's a leadership thing, right? Because nobody wants to go first. Everybody wants to go second or third. They'd be willing to do that, but they're not going to go first with where they failed. You have to do that because you're the leader. So you've you've just delivered a lot to unpack there. So first of all, um, I'm going to speak to you if you're a leader, and that's this. Leaders go first. Leadership requires you to go first. Don't ask people to do what you're not willing to do. If you're asking them to do what you're not willing to do, then you need to give up your role. You're yep. out. I'm sorry, yep. you're fired. You're no longer in that role. So yep. you know you need you need kahunas to be a leader. That means you've got to be courageous and you've got to step into that. So that's number one. I love your point about um, insightful vulnerability, and I'd like to stack on top of that, if I may, Please. With, the, with the reciprocal vulnerability. Because there is a problem with it that I want to address head on. And, and I see this a lot of times in speakers, and I see it reflected in, in – in this culture that we live in, which is, and I'm going to address this very directly, the culture of the American dream. The American dream is, you you know, the rags to riches story. Well, the rags to riches story has a lot of stuff in the middle that is often missed. Yes. And this is the point here. So mm. if you have a, uh, a vulnerability piece, that's great. If you have insights from it, that's great. But your insights are not without the stuff in the middle. And if you don't share that, they don't get it. So I'll give you, may I give an example, John? Please, please, please. My own story. I know you know this story. Well, but I was going to ask you about this anyway, because there's okay, a place that all this came from for both of us. Yes. It's a little different. There's a lot of similarities. And I'd love for you to share your story. Thank you. So in June 1990, I was about as successful as I'd ever been up until that point. I was traveling all over. I was speaking and I... I even owned a big American car, which for me, as a kid who grew up in the UK, that was the, <laughs> I've made it. <laughs> and on a particular day, um, I decided to have a couple of days off. I was with a friend. We went up to a place called, that you may be familiar with, uh, by Whistler, which is where the uh, 2010 Winter Olympics were held. This yeah. was June. It was nice. It was beautiful. We went to see a place called Brandywine Falls, which is where a uh, it's a glacial waterfall. The water comes off the glacier for 200 feet, swirling down, and then plummets off the edge of this cliff. It's fantastic. It's wow. gorgeous. Yeah. We looked at this and was like in awe, like, wow. 
And I, being an adrenaline junkie, as I was in those days, not anymore, I am recovering, <laughs> um, I said to my friend, let's scramble down. And he's like, there's no path. Yeah, well, let's go anyway. So we get down the bottom, and I say to him, let's see if we can get behind the waterfall. This is a crazy thing to do. Getting behind that waterfall, you've got a 70-mile-an-hour wind coming at you with the water. You've got to go over mossy rocks, and if you – if you were to put your arm out into that water, it would take your arm off. And I said, let's yeah. try to get behind it. He agrees because he's crazy too. And we get behind there. We come out on the other side. And I, I, it was like I had a tattoo of a big ass on my chest. I'm like, yeah, I can do anything. And, and I was filled yeah. with negative ions, which makes positive charge in the body. I felt indestructible and behaved in such a way. If you think mountain climbing is dangerous, it's not. You have safety lines. You have all kinds of good stuff to make sure you're safe. But free climbing is not so safe. You have yeah. shorts, you have the right clothing, right footwear, but that's about it. Free climbing while you're soaking wet without any of those things is for the insane. And I was clearly insane because I said, let's not hike, let's free climb. At about 120 feet, I reached for a rock that dislodged a bigger rock that came bam and hit me in the face and sent me hurtling down at maximum velocity onto the boulders below, not not small little rocks or grass, boulders. And I was smashed to pieces. Or as I like to say, I fell 120 feet from a self-imposed pedestal and I landed on my ego. <laughs> smashed to pieces. Okay, I can tell so you all the details. It's not funny. It don't matter. It's They're gruesome. They're gruesome. You don't need to know them. But everybody will ask me at that point. Uh, so this is your insight thing, right? That must have changed your life. And I originally used to say yes. But now I know that's a lie. That did not change my life. In fact, what it did was it embedded me in my old identity. So when people would say to me, how you doing, Dov? I'd go, I'm great. I'm coming back. Meanwhile, my jaw was wired closed. Yeah. If I, I fell in June. In November, I went bungee jumping with my jaw wired at 140 feet off the Nimo Bridge. Looney, hello. Woo! Yeah. Right? It didn't, it didn't change my life. It embedded me in my identity of being, well, I'm yeah. a leader. I'm a martial artist. I'm a boxer. I'm from the ghetto. You don't get me down. It was yeah. a big, fat lie. And I would go out with my buddies on the weekend and they would say to me, you know, and I, you know, we'd be doing things and I wouldn't be able to laugh. And I think, oh my God, you know, I've lost my sense of humor with with this. I've lost my identity with the way I physically look, but I've also lost my sense of humor. What's going on? And then one night we had a night out and I had laughter and I was like, okay, I'm coming back, baby. And as I came home from that night, I felt so good. And I opened the kitchen door and as I opened the kitchen door, light from outside sort of it's it just lit the kitchen floor and as it did i could see garbage festooned everywhere there was kitty litter there was meat containers there were cans it smelled horrible it was terrible coffee grinds and i knew exactly who the culprit was and i went looking for that culprit because i'd gone from pure joy to pure rage it blind rage and i went looking for the culprit when i got into the living room there's the culprit all curled up and cozy on the couch and I lifted my hand to strike. Now, I'm not a violent person. Oh. But I was ready to strike. I was so full of rage. And halfway through, I kicked in and went, oh, that's not who I am. And I, and I put my arms down and I scooped up the cat into my arms. And I held that cat in my arms. And the cat was stone cold. He was dead. Oh. 
the cat had died and I fell to my knees and I began to just weep. And I was not there for more than probably two or three minutes weeping, not crying. I mean, we were talking about sobbing, yeah. Sobbing, right? And I'm just, and I suddenly realized I'm not crying for the cat. I'm crying for the identity that is dead. And I, so this is probably nine months after I've fallen. Yeah. And I said, and I realized I had a choice. I could keep trying, keep saying, I'm coming back. But in life, in chronology, there is no back. There's only forward. So that doesn't work. I'm not coming back. And clearly I'm falling apart and I've been faking it. And I realized that. The next choice was the most deliciously seductive one. And that was to stay right where I was, to become a victim of this fall, to know that I've given it everything. And I could, this would now be my story and I could hold on to that. Mm. And the third choice, which scared the crap out of me, was to find the meaning of my life. What is the purpose of why I'm here? And if you'd have asked me five minutes before I fell, if I knew my purpose, I would have said yes. But I realized I didn't know my purpose. So there was a catalytic moment that people think changes your life. It isn't. The choice point is the point that changes your life. And the choice point only comes when everything can go back to normal. The guy who has a heart attack and he's in, he's had surgery and you go visit him and he says, oh, yeah, I've realized I've made a mistake. I've missed out on my kids and I've missed out on anniversaries and I've missed out on all those things. It's all going to change. And then you see him three months later and he's doing 60 hours a week again and he's never home. Yeah. Because the event didn't change him. The event yeah. is a catalyst. It's pivotal. Yeah. But it's the choice point when everything can go back to normal. That's when we change. So that is, as you say, that's the insight of the vulnerability. That's yeah. the learning. And it's not until you can go back to normal and you go, hmm, is there something else? And I know that was, you know, you and I have talked about how that happened for you. It's not in those moments. And everybody, and yeah. so when we tell the American story of the rags to riches, we think it's that moment, but it's not. And that's a trap because we miss the, the most difficult part for me was not even the nine months up into that moment because I was just, I was just bullshitting myself. Yeah. It was the next nine months of weeping and journaling and going, okay, and feeling the pull back to the, quote, normal and yeah. saying, I'm made for something else. Guide me. You know, if you ask, you know, if you believe in a faith, you know, guide me or whatever it is. Yeah. Therapy, journaling. I can speed up that process. I do speed up the process with my clients now. Yeah. Much quicker. Yeah. But it, it's that. It's that moment of realizing that's where the true insight is. It's in yeah. the transformation that comes after. Yeah. That's a brilliant, really important point because you're absolutely right. You're just absolutely right. You know, I mean, and in a way it, there's that moment, but really like part of the problem with that dove is that it's not a moment. It's every moment. Like it's going to make me cry right now. Like, Every moment is the choice. Are you going to do it? Are you going to keep, you know, revealing yourself? Are you going to keep climbing this mountain? Are you, or do you want to go back to that familiar pole? Because you could at any moment, really. And that's, but that's the key, isn't it? You know, so I, I, do, I did a lot of work in my psychological training around addiction. Yeah. And, I, and one of the things I will say to people all the time is, I said, you know, you want to judge people for being addicts, but here's what you need to know. 
you're an addict. And they go, what do you yeah. mean? I'm not real. And they go, oh. So no, human beings are addicts. That's what we are. Yeah. But you may be addicted to socially approved things. So shooting heroin might not be so socially great, but volunteering at church five days a week, oh, everybody's applauding. Aren't you wonderful? Yeah. Or going out and creating another million, you know, oh, aren't you yeah. wonderful? Those are just yeah. socially acceptable addictions. Yeah. And so there's always a, and so with any addiction, which is actually an avoidance of dealing with what you need to deal with, but yeah. any addiction is, is simply, always going to have those receptors on your cells. So the pull back to your old addiction, your old normal is going to yeah. be there. And you're absolutely right, John. I mean, I really want people to get that what John said here is so important for you to realize is that pull is there every day. There is a choice in every single moment. I live my life that way. I live my marriage that way. People say to me, me and my wife, they say, oh, you have such a great marriage. We want a marriage like yours. Yeah. You know, you, it's so great. You've got a perfect relationship. <laughs> First of all, that doesn't exist. And yeah. second of all, we've been asked many times, what is your secret? And we say two things. One, I'm not here to change the other person. I'm not. I'm here to push them to be their best. Absolutely. We do that with each other. But I'm not here to change it. If you don't want to change that, it's not my business. The second thing is this. Divorce is always an option for my partner. We both live there. If I don't step up my game every day, it's a choice in not just in every day, but in every moment of how to treat that yeah. person. They're free to go. Now think of your life that way. Yeah. Now think of your life that way. You can go into the zombie zone and live in the blah with everybody else, yeah. or you're going to choose in every moment, am I going to step into my courage? Am I going to yeah. step up? and do something magnificent in this moment. And by when I say magnificent, I'm not talking about big. That's not, that's not about magnificence. Magnificence is something that scares me, and it might simply be a conversation. It might simply be an I love you. It might simply be one of those reciprocal, vulnerable conversations that where yeah. you share your insights. Yeah. You know, this leads me to something that I've been thinking about for years now. That actually I heard first from my father and he is a Marine, you know, he retired, got a medical discharge. He was wounded in Vietnam. He's a, a combat Marine, saw some really terrible stuff. I'm going to get him on the show here sometime pretty soon, uh, but, uh, but he learned so much and he's such a fount of wisdom in his kind of down home way. It's awesome. But I remember him telling me, and I'd love to, to get your thoughts on this. I'll kind of play my little side of it out, and then you can yeah. tell me what you hear in it. He said, son, you do not want a fearless foxhole buddy. That guy will get you killed. What yep. you want is a courageous foxhole buddy, somebody who has their fear but takes action in the face of it anyway when it matters enough. And I think that we see a lot of things where they get that wrong, like, you know, like fearless public speaking by the Harvard Business Review. Dude, that is the dumbest thing I ever heard. You know, like we have a word for fearless public speakers, and that's called uh, sociopath. <laughs> you know, like there's another word for them yep. robots. Yeah, that too. Yep. When I see those speakers, and I'm like, hold on a second, have I got a spoon? Because I will need to slash my wrist, and a spoon will take longer than a knife. Because if <laughs> I have to sit through this, I'm going to die. And they're fearless because they're freaking robots. They're just 
bam, and bam, and bam, and bam. They're just regurgitating nonsense. They're not emotionally connected. And yeah. that emotion, as you know, you know better than anybody, is the fuel. Well, let's yeah. not give away the fuel. Like, right. oh, hold on a second. I'm going to take this Ferrari top speed, but let's empty the tank first. Are you yeah. on crack? Yeah. No, it's crazy. Right. right. It's, it's like that is what it is. It's it's not fearlessness. It's like use the fear. That's your fuel. Yeah. Be with it. And it's and cor cor courageousness is much more inspiring than fearlessness. Oh. And in this realm of vulnerability, it takes courage. Of course, it's scary, right? Like we like getting noticed by the group. Look what happened to people. Jesus, Joan of Arc, Martin Luther King, John F. Kennedy, Socrates, right? Got noticed by the group. <laughs> yeah, you know? So if you're not scared of getting noticed by the group, you're missing something, actually. You know, well, I think that also it's not only scared of getting noticed by the group, is that it's that people will back away even at the potential of it, mm -hmm. even yeah. at the very potential of it. So, um, a friend of mine, who I know you know, Larry Winger, wonderful guy, great speaker, phenomenal speaker. And he says, You know, if I don't get a couple of death threats a week, I know I'm no longer relevant. <laughs> yes, I wish I was that brave, yeah. But, but you know, but his point is that. If you're not ruffling feathers, you're not making a difference. Yeah. And I yeah. think that we, you know, we're, we're like these armchair, um, and you know, or keyboard warriors. You know, we've all got our opinions, but you don't have any philosophy. You don't have any depth. You can't back anything up. And so you back away. Okay. But if you have something, then you need the courage to step forward in that knowing that you're going to ruffle feathers because part of our problem today is, you know, we talked about this a few minutes ago. We've got this diam diametrically opposed polarized world where people are afraid to speak. But, yeah. and, and I get that. I understand that. But if we don't get past that, everybody becomes silenced and yeah. we end up with the thought police. So, yeah, I'm going to piss some people off. I've probably already done it. I said several things that are a little provocative. I'm not doing it to be provocative. I have no interest in that. I'm doing it because this is my truth. You don't yeah. have to believe my truth. I am not going to die if you don't. It's not going to hurt me. It's okay. I love conversations with people who don't agree with me. That's okay. Because out of that, there's an intimacy from which we grow. We're pursuing success at the cost of our own souls. We pursue fitting in at the cost of our own souls. We trade our authenticity for our for the approval of others. That's a high price. Yeah, huge. So so I you know, is there anything else out of this that you've noticed out of this uh out of the out of these talking with people from these, you know, highly charged kind of positions and things? Yeah, um Again, it's it's confronting this biases is that the ones I've had on are insanely human. Yeah. You know, and it's part of the, again, it's part of the, like somebody said to me recently, you're never intimidated by people. Why is that? But you intimidate the shit out of people. This is a friend of mine. You intimidate yeah, yeah. The shit out of people, but how come you're never intimidated by people? I said, well, first of all, let's look at what's intimidating about me. And they said, what is it? I said, I honestly have come to realize, because I was very concerned about it for a long time. I've come to realize that people are intimidated by people who've managed to set their soul free, who found a way to set their soul mm. free. 
And they're intimidated by it because looking into it says, oh, my God, my soul is sick. They don't want to look at that. They don't want to deal with that. It's too confronting. And so they're scared away. Now, some are scared away and some are pulled to it. Yeah. The ones who are pulled to it are my friends. They're my and when I say my family, I'm talking about my spiritual family. They're my yeah. friends. They're my family. They're my clients. You know, they're those people. They're pulled yeah. to that. They want their soul to be free. So that's what's intimidating. Okay. But when you are intimidated by another person, you have simply elevated them into something that you're not. And so, okay, so you said, well, you know, I'm not like this person. They made a billion bucks. Okay. Where are you a billionaire? And they go, well, I'm not. No, no. Outside of money, where are you a billionaire? Because many, many years ago, and I'm talking 23 years ago, I was hanging out with Mark, Mark Victor Hansen and Jack Canfield yeah. at the very beginning of Chicken Soup. Yeah. And, and I was actually in New York hanging out with them, you know, as friends and hanging out, particularly with Mark. I knew Mark very well. And I came back and I was talking to a friend of mine who was another speaker. And I said, you know, I said, uh, I'm, I'm complaining, which I don't yeah. do. <laughs> <I'm complaining. laughs> and he says, oh, so you think Mark has it better than you? And I said, well, Mark has this, and he's done that, and he's got these, and he's got all this money, and blah, blah, blah. And he said, I wonder what parts of Mark's life he would willingly trade for yours. And mm. it wasn't, I realized in that moment it wasn't about Mark. It yeah. was about how I was letting my mind make somebody different slash better than me yeah. rather than understanding what I've got is my it, – it's, it's my burden to carry, whether that's my success or my failures, and everybody has that. So in these yeah. wonderful conversations with people, and it's what we do, it's how I do the show, is they reveal that. So I've got, yeah. uh, in the last episode that we released, I have a very, very successful CEO of a publishing company. He, he started out, he made millions of dollars on the stock market. He never went to college, never got a degree. Mm. He went from there into um, a software company. He can't write code. He now runs this very multi-million dollar um, publishing company and he can barely spell and he's pretty illiterate. And so, you know, he's, it, so the story is like, oh, you know, here's a guy who overcome all the things. But we get into the humanity of that. What was that really like? Yeah. To have a pimp dad, a dad who was a black pimp and a white orphaned mother and his father fathered 23 kids, but he was the only kid with his mother and what was it like to grow up illiterate as a mixed race kid with a pimp dad? And you start realizing the humanity of people. Oh, and once you do that, you strip it away, you suddenly see yourself in them. So he's saying something. I said, well, tell me an experience. And he goes, well, people don't know what poor is. And I said, well, I agree with that because I grew up very poor. Yeah. And he goes, well, I said, but give us an example from your reality. He goes, bread bags. And I said, and I just started to smile. Because I knew where <laughs> And he said, yeah. bread bags on my feet. And I said, to keep out the, the, the snow and the rain from your feet because yeah. you had holes in your shoes. And he goes, yeah. Yep. I go, yep. I had forgotten about that. Yep. And we started talking about getting dressed in front of the oven because there was no, no coal for the fire. We couldn't afford it. And there was no electric. There was only gas in the stove. So mom would light the stove 20 minutes before we came down and we'd all get dressed around the stove. And this humanity comes forward. Yeah. So instead of looking at, oh, my God, you're such a powerful CEO, you look at, oh, my, the humanity. And, again, yeah. reciprocal vulnerability. 
It's so beautiful. Yeah. 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 I mean, and there's, God, there's so many places I want to go with this. One place is uh, we can do this kind of quickly, I think, but, um, you know, I get the question sometimes and look, there is such a thing as oversharing and being vulnerable about the wrong stuff at the wrong time. But people fundamentally, I think that there is this resistance to that because like, oh, you know, I mean, if people at work know this about me, they'll have something on me and I don't want to reveal that stuff. And and it's like, okay, well, look, (laughs) I mean, really, you spend your whole life there and you want to be hiding stuff and you don't want to be free to be you. And like the fulfillment that is possible in a, in an, in an, in an authentic, vulnerable, open environment versus a closed one. And, and I think at the same time, the success that's available yeah. is just, I mean, yeah, it's a risk, but dude, I mean, so's everything. Like it's a risk worth taking. I think. I think you're so right. Um, particularly those of us who were 45 plus, we were trained to believe that vulnerability was weakness. It's mm. not, it's actually your greatest strength. But I understand that you're nervous about that. I understand that you're cautious about it because you were trained to not show the chink in your armor. I get it. However, let me help you because I get this all the time from the yeah. leaders I look at. They go, "Oh, I don't know about vulnerability." Or no, I and I say, "Listen, first of all, I give the example of the best friend versus the acquaintance that we did earlier." Yeah. yeah. And then I say, "But let me just explain to you. You've likely holding." this idea of vulnerability or the lack of vulnerability in polarity. I am not talking about it in polarity because what you've got is, and oftentimes they'll give me an example. I say, well, tell me somebody, you know, because they are, you know, they have the resistance. Say, okay, well tell me somebody, you know, is vulnerable. And then they'll tell me this person who emotionally vomits on everybody about everything and every, and every situation. And I go, that's not vulnerability. Yeah. That's emotional vomit. Yeah. Vulnerability distinction. In the context that we're talking about has discernment and it is measured and it is reciprocal. So they say, okay, what do you mean? It goes like this. Hi, I'm Bob. Okay. Hi, I'm Susan. Fantastic. Um, level of vulnerability, level one. Um, I'm divorced. Oh, me too. Fantastic. Level of vulnerability number two. I have three children one of whom is a bit of a pain in the ass. Okay. Oh, well, that's interesting. I only have two kids. My kids have been pretty great, but I think that one of my kids might be doing shit that I'm not aware of. It's measured. It's step by step. It is reciprocal and it is discerning. It's not, oh, I'm divorced and my wife was a complete bitch and she set the house on fire and yeah. stole it and <laughs> ran off my best friend's truck. No. Right. Like, be it. Like, use your brain. Vulnerability. Yeah. <laughs> has to be discerning, right? You don't do that with everybody. There are things about my childhood. I'll tell you anything you want to know, but only if you ask and only or only if you give me something that has that level of vulnerability in it. So when Javon said to me about bread bags, I'm like, okay, I can yeah, tell it. It's all, but yeah. But I'm not there without that lead. There's a measure. Right. And this is the thing yeah. we've all got to pay attention to. So it's not in the polarity are either walled off or vomiting on people. No, yeah. that's not the option. Well, and you know, the other thing I hear in in what you're saying, which I think is something that maybe I didn't think about nearly enough. And I know that it just doesn't seem to be available till people, till they start to really take it on. But 
all this stuff that you're doing, all the stories about you, yeah, it's a story about you. Yeah, this vulnerable thing you're sharing is about you, but it's with an intention of connecting with another human being and making some new level of connection available to the two of you. So to, to keep your audience in mind with all of this, like you said, it's discerning, right? Yes. And it's not, it's not that it's manipulative or that it's overly planned out or that it's some kind of plot or something. It's just to be discerning and to be clear on the goal of connection and opening things up for people and, and deepening your understanding of each other and things like that. Absolutely. And if, can I give a piece from my my speaker training? Yeah, please help um, for people to get it. And because this is this is neurobiology, and I know you love that stuff too, John. Yeah, I do. Um, this is neurobiology. This is psychology, and it and it works. But it's not to be manipulative. It's just what works. So what I will say to my clients is, you know, you're going to need to share stories. And this, there are three main stories in every presentation I say. It's not the truth. It's what I teach. And so I say, okay, now the thing about that is that each of those stories has a, the first purpose is to take them to the movies. And they go, okay, so you want to sit them down in the cinema and get them engaged in your movie. And they go, okay, I can get that. I said, you've had that, right? Somebody's talked to you and you can start creating pictures in your head. Yeah. And you go, yeah, yep. you, yeah, great. The next level of that story is as you deepen it, they need to jump out of the cinema where they're watching your movie and find themselves in their own cinema watching their movie, listening to your narration because it's almost – there's so many similarities in it that then they say – and this is what happens. Mirror neurons fire in the brain. And when the mirror neurons fire in the brain, they're like, you're like me, I'm like you. We trust yeah. people we are like. So the purpose of your story is nothing more than to elicit their story, not anything else. It's to elicit their story within them, to give them an insight into themselves through you. You are guiding the way. You are taking the light into the darkness for them so they can look at something inside of themselves, and then they can go, oh, I can listen to this person because they get me. Yeah. Now, let me just give you the, the really juicy bit of this. Have you ever been in love? I'm sure you have. Yes. Right? And I say to you, okay, tell me what love is. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody goes, I don't know, but I know, have you felt it? Yes. So you know you felt it, but you don't know what it is. And they go, right. And I say, I'm going to tell you when you knew you were in love. And they go, really? I go, yeah. I'm going to put my psychic underpants on, and I'm going to tell you exactly when you knew you were in love. And they go, okay. And I say, it was the moment you said to somebody else, he, she really gets me. That's the moment of in love when you feel gotten. Every yeah. human being on the planet wants to feel gotten. That's what we want. As a, as a speaker, when you tell your story and it suddenly triggers them into their cinema, they feel gotten. And yeah. that creates a bond with your audience that you cannot have anywhere else. Yeah. That's the power of storytelling. It's that people can feel gotten. He got me. She got me. And that's why 
stories are so vitally important. They're old, they're connected to the mammalian part of the brain, and they fire off the mirror neurons. And when that happens, you get the polypeptide cascade from the hypothalamus of your brain that floods your body with all the wonderful hormones that make you feel fantastic. And if you can do it well enough, you'll fire oxytocin. And when you fire oxytocin, they will bond with you. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliantly said. And, you know, and that is exactly why I say your stories are not for you. No. They're for the audience, right? And it's because what you said, you get you you start in your movie theater, but then they end up in their own movie and they feel gotten brilliantly, brilliantly said. That's really, really good. Thank you. Yeah, I love it. So now maybe I or do you have a few more minutes because we're at the top of the yeah. hour? I don't I don't know I what do. your next okay. So maybe maybe one more thing to talk about. I just got a signed copy of this in the mail. Uh, yesterday, um, this guy has been a just a, a I'm just a fan of his, and and you know somebody who's listening right now might have heard me talk about this already. Hopefully, it's okay that I bring it up again. But there's this fabulous book that just came out called Survival of the Friendliest. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that yet? It's, so so it's a guy, it's a guy named Brian Hare and his partner Vanessa Woods, and they. Uh, I met him years ago and didn't realize it, but I told him all about his theory of it's called the cooperative eye gaze theory. And I told him all about it and how fabulous I thought it was and how brilliant it was. And he looked at me and said, well, that's my theory. <laughs> and I was like, no way. And he's like, yeah, I'm like, oh dude, that's brilliant. So the, the short story of it is that if you take any, uh, so we're the only uh, primate with whites in our eyes. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's interesting. It's not even a variable feature. Not most mm-hmm. people have white, like it's whites and it's not like there, there's anything different. It's all, everybody's mm-hmm. got whites in their eyes. And then unless there's some medical issue or an yeah. scar, or whatever. but um, so now we're the only primate and one of the only animals that has whites in our eyes. And we had to give up being sneaky. Because if people can see the whites in your eyes, they now know where you're looking. They know a lot more about you. It's given a lot away. So this, what, so, but what they, what they showed is that if you sit any great ape, really smart creature uh, over there and you put what they like under one bucket and nothing under another bucket, and then you look from their eyes, you look them in the eye and then you look at the bucket with the thing under that has the stuff they like. And then you look back at them and you look at the bucket again. They won't get it. Now, the interesting thing is a dog would get it because dogs have evolved with us for 50,000 years. So they understand that. But no mm-hmm. great apes get that. Uh, right. You know, a gorilla wouldn't get that. And and yet we get that as human beings. And, uh, and we are great apes. And we are great apes, yes. Yeah, and, and so what, so, you know, they said that we, you know, the fundamental point of the thing is that we gave up being sneaky so that we could better understand each other and better know what each other were thinking so that we could cooperate that was the big thing like this is a this is an a, this enhances our ability to cooperate and this book is now the book of this much more fully developed theory and it turns out that like you know we we developed 
you know, like the, the biggest, uh, one of the biggest tragedies is that out of evolution came this theory of survival of the fittest and everybody pictures the biggest, meanest, strongest person, you know, okay, that's wrong. Actually in the upper paleolithic time period, there were other forms of humans. There were Denisovans, there were Neanderthals, you know, and all of a sudden in the upper paleolithic, they all died out and mm -hmm. homo sapiens took over everything. It turns out that it seems very likely that the reason that happened is because we got more friendly. It has nothing to do with bigger teeth, stronger, not even smarter. We just got better at cooperating, right? So when I met him this first time and I told him that, I said, so Brian, here's what I've been telling people about this. What do you think of it? I've been, I've been saying that I think this that your theory, the cooperative eye gaze theory, is a, is actually proof that vulnerability is an, an authenticity. Authenticity is what I said. Authenticity is an evolutionary advantage for human beings. And he thought about it for a second and he said, yeah, I think you could say that. So I'm saying that. Um, and, you know, survival of the friendliest is super interesting. And I think that you would really enjoy it given all the things you focus on. The, the, the thing that I couldn't, the, that whole thing to get to this, oxytocin is the bonding hormone. Yep. Yep. Now, the thing I didn't know till I read this book is oxytocin is also the exact same chemical that when secreted in large portions, when we're under stress and we're able to dehumanize the other tribe over there. And we're afraid of them, and we say, "Oh, their animals get them." That's what oxytocin is. What just shuts down all our upper functions and allows us to do genocide to yeah. other human beings. So it's a two-sided sword that I didn't realize that other side. And I think it comes down. I think it circles us all the way back around to this reciprocal vulnerability, and and how dangerous it is to be dehumanizing others. We may disagree with others, but when we start using dehumanizing language, that is actually paving the road to genocide. I mean, right there, you've opened up an, another hour of conversation that, uh, you know, uh, so first of all, as you know, I've written lots about and spoken lots about othering and the dangers of othering. Uh, when I, you know, I said earlier that I spoke at the World Management Conference in Iran, and I felt a responsibility when I came back to write about it and put 12 myths about Iran, because particularly in the United States, Iranians are othered, you know, so we, we're, said, we're othering them hardcore. Absolutely. Time, right? So, you know, I said, you know, you think it's hot there all the time, right? I was there in winter. It was minus four. Um, you think that they all ride around on camels. Uh, they ride around in Fords, in Mercedes, and all the other cars. They have a modern city. They take their kids to school, et cetera. And I went through all these yeah. things and how wonderful and kind they were because I yeah. wanted to humanize them again, yeah. which is yes. what they need to do. Now, the yeah. interesting thing about, about this is we other the other tribe, as you're absolutely right, in order to protect ourselves. But the more we tear down the othering, the more we reveal the humanity – the less we can do that. Now, what's really fascinating about that is that is a commitment to leave the tribe psychologically. 
human beings are tribal. We need we need a tribe. We need to belong. But if we only stay in our own tribe, we start othering everybody else. So we yeah. need to expand. This is why traveling is so important or meeting other people from other cultures is important. It's why diversity is so important. Yes. But as you come to this piece of, from Darwin, you know, as you said, the misquote is it's survival of the fittest. That is an entirely wrong quote. What Darwin says is it is not the survival of the fittest. It is not even the survival of the most intelligent. It is the survival of the most adaptive based on collaboration. So when species come together and they will collaborate, create a relationship and they build that and they become stronger and smarter because it's times whatever the collaboration is. And other, other species don't do that, and so they burned out. That's what it is. So that need to collaborate with others. So in my book, Fiercely Loyal, I talked about I don't believe in competition. I believe in collaboration. John teaches people to speak. I teach people to speak. I want to serve John's audience, not to compete with him, but because the guy's doing an amazing job, and I want to serve that. I want to collaborate to that. Because that's what it's about. That That is about making the world a better place by not holding those lines, by expanding those tribes. And by that, I come away smarter, John comes away smarter, and you gain the benefits of that. That's important. Yeah. It's about expansion. Yeah. It's about collaboration. It's about unification. It's about finding a way to come together and not othering, but set, finding what's similar in us. When we fall in love, in the first 18 months of falling in love, do you know what the most common thing we say is? You're just like me. <laughs> when you hit power struggle, which happens neurologically at about 18 months, do you know what you say? You're not like me. You're not what I thought you were. We're so different. And so we need to end. Most relationships break up in that period. The first period is, oh, we're so alike. We finish each other's sentences. In the second no. period, stop saying what I'm saying. Stop finishing my sentences. <laughs> we're looking yeah. different. This is the yeah. way the mind is trained to work to survival. We've got to look. We have to, and this is where we teach relationship program. My wife and I, we say, you've got to look for what's the same. Stop looking for what's different. When you do yeah. that, you find a bond. and You find like, oh, we can work together. This is marvelous. Isn't this wonderful? Yeah, that's very powerful. I think I think is really really great. And I think, you know, that I think that that uh that is the fundamental kind of ultimate thing that I think we've been talking about this whole time, right? Is that actually that fear of being vulnerable? Like, <laughs> dude, what do you think we don't all have that? You know, it's like that connectedness like we're all human. We all have these failures and mistakes and things we're scared to share. And when we do that, it 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 doesn't connect us. What I think it does is it makes the connection we already have more obvious. Yeah, and it makes it it makes it not superficial. Yeah. See this thing we live in a material world and I get that. I live there too where we bond over the team. Like, hold on a second. You just spent hours cheering on a team who players are getting paid millions of dollars. You contributed to that with your money. You're cheering them on. And you're willing to have a fight with another guy on another, from who supports another team. Meanwhile, you can't support your own wife. 
You can't support your own husband. You can't support your own children. You can't support yourself psychologically, much more financially. Like, come on. Like, when are you gonna? When are you gonna be cheering for your team, for the people yeah. who are loving and supporting you? Yeah. That's the re- and that only happens in reciprocal vulnerability. Yeah. Your kids don't. You know, if you've got kids who are, you feel like they're not really connected to me, you're not vulnerable enough with them. I'm not talking about being weak. Again, reciprocal, discerning vulnerability. Don't tell them every gory detail of your love life when you were 18. They don't want to know. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to know about your humanity. Yes. That is so powerful. My yeah. granddaughter was visiting us on the weekend, and my wife drives us to school on Monday morning, and she's in the car with her, and she suddenly told my wife something, her grandma something, that her dad, so our son, had told her about me. He's never told me that, but he told her about a feeling he has for me that has come from my reciprocal vulnerability with him. He's never acknowledged it with me. He's never yeah. going to, okay, that's all right. But it's had that impact because I was willing to constantly step into vulnerability. You want to yeah. bond with people, this is what you must do. If you want to bond with an audience, you need to do it. And again, as a speaker, it's not about emotional vomit. And please don't do faux vulnerability, F-A-U-X. Don't do that because I got news for you. People oh. have got 10-mile bullshit meters. They'll read it. They might come up to you and smile. Afterwards, yeah. But that's as fake as your vulnerability. But yeah. When you really show up and get real, the way that John got moved to move to, to tears talking about what we talked about earlier, the way I get moved on stage, absolutely feel that. And be honest with it. I still, 36 years as a speaker, spoken all over the world. I got to tell you, the level of anxiety I have to speak is still massive. It's it's chest crushing sometimes. <laughs> and people go, yeah. oh, I wish I was like you. You seem to be so comfortable on stage. I am, but getting there, oh, my God. Yeah. I'm so yeah. comfortable on stage, but getting there is like I'm dragging 50 tons with me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I acknowledge you for doing it because think of the difference that 36 years of you speaking out with insightful vulnerability and, and discerning vulnerability and telling your story over and over and over again, like it's the first time because it's the first time they've heard it and all that stuff that you do and all the things that, you know, frankly, most people don't even think about all the all the times you were stuck in an airport, all the times you, you, you know, blah, 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 all that stuff. Nobody will ever know about. Thanks for doing that because I just think you make a huge difference because you're willing to do that. And, uh, and uh, I just, I do have to say the pedestal you put yourself on, we, we the, that was say that one more time. Cause that was brilliant. You I fell off. I fell 120 feet from a self-imposed pedestal and landed on my ego. <laughs> and I laughed and then I felt terrible because I thought about what the actual condition to your body was, but I'm just glad you lived through that. And well, I'm glad I, I, I could not be the man I was if that fall hadn't have happened. Yeah. I yeah. needed that. Anything else wouldn't have worked for me. Yeah. And no, you say, needed a <laughs> What I, what I say to people is, you don't have to fall off a freaking mountain. That's my stupidity. Yeah. That's not my intelligence. That's my dumb stubbornness. If yeah. you twist your ankle, take that as a sign. 
It doesn't yeah. matter if it really is. Take it as one. Okay. Yeah. Don't yeah. wait to fall off the mountain. Don't wait for a heart attack. Don't wait to get hit by a bus. Don't wait for your wife or your husband to leave you. Yeah. Pay attention. You are a beautiful, magnificent soul. You've got to share that with the world. And sharing your bravado, well, yeah, you're right. That will impress a lot of 20-year-olds who are looking to get rich. But it won't impress anybody that really matters. It won't impress the relationships that you really care about. Be yeah. real. So I think that's a great a great note for us to wind it up on, Dove. I, I, because I really, really, I encourage you, wherever you are right now, whatever you're doing right now, take that advice. Don't, you know, I almost died of an autoimmune disease after I lost my company. We raised $80 million and then we went flat on our face and, and I, you know, I was not taking care of myself, sleeping, not enough, not nearly enough. I was stressed and hating myself and angry and I almost died. And Dove fell off a, you know, 120 foot pedestal that he erected himself and landed on his ego and almost died. You don't have to do that. You could just say, gosh, you know, that podcast, I think that podcast might have just changed my life because I'm going to step into it right now before I have to. Before I have to. And human beings are motivated by pain, unfortunately. <laughs> so you can create that pain. You know, like I said, we don't have to fall the mountain. And you, you might make the change if you have enough pain. But you know what? There's an amazing thing about the human mind. You can create the pain in your mind before it exists. Yeah. Imagine what it's like if you keep going down this path, whatever path you're on, if you keep going down the path of ignoring what you need to look at, where does that leave you in five years? Million yeah. bucks in the bank? Fantastic. How's your marriage? Dead? Oh, kids don't talk to you? Oh, how's your health? Oh, you're overweight? Got your got heart problems? Like, let yourself walk down the path of consequence because you will pay a high price for success if you don't take care of your soul. That's yeah. what I want you to know. And I want to say before we finish, if you are listening to this podcast for the first time, I want you to do something for me. I want you to understand this is not about competition. This is, this is about collaboration. This is about understanding you live in an abundant world. Go on to wherever you listen to your podcast, subscribe to the show, leave a comment, leave some feedback, review the show, let, let John know that it's worth it, and then share it with your friends. Don't hold the information. Share it with others. Write to John. Tell him what you got out of this show. And it doesn't have to be just the one with me, any of them. Write to him. Like he puts the time, the energy, the effort, and I know what it takes. Let him know that, hey, I, thank you so much, and here's why it's great. And you can even write to me. John gave you my email, dov, D-O-V, at dovbaron.com, and type, write to us both. Tell us what you got out of it, and more importantly, what are you going to do with it? Information. Mm with the hole in the donut transformation comes from application do it i want to thank you for your time your energy your commitment and your presence with us i thank you john for such an honor always love talking to you mate you're a gentleman you're a scholar and you're a first class human being thank you for all that you do in the world and all the differences you're making by pulling out those stories from people and allowing them to share their beauty with the world. Thank you. Oh, Dove, you're so welcome. Thank you for that. I feel very, I think I'm in love with you.
<laughs> I, I think you get me. <laughs> and I'm not even kidding. I, I am in love with you. And I'm so glad to have you in my life. I'm so glad to have you here. I hope you'll come back again sometime soon. And all the best to you in everything you do. And, and thank you for that. Thank you for everything. Thank you, sir. And to you listening, we'll see you next time. We'll hear you next time. Thanks for coming. And uh, I, I think you, you'll see why I was, you now understand why I was so excited to introduce you to Dove and, uh, and, you know, go, go do that thing. Go pay attention to that quiet knocking before it becomes that smack in the face that Dove and I got. <laughs> we'll see you again soon. Thank you for joining the Speak Like a Leader podcast. Go be awesome. Thank you.